Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. We're happy you can spend some time with us today. We've got a really interesting guest. Barry, I want to introduce you to Lance Fegan of Fegans. Well, hey, Lance, it's a pleasure to meet you. Looking forward to hearing your story. And I'm going to dive right in. Why don't you let our listeners know about your concept and, you know, how you got into the restaurant business, what path you took to get where you are, and just kind of gives an analysis of, you know, where you came from and where you are, and we'd like to learn more about it. We'll ask some questions. Okay, great. Well, the current concept we rolled out now is actually utilizing my last name, which draws a little bit of weight here in Houston. I've been a professional in Houston as a chef for 30 years, and owning restaurants now, I guess about 18 of those years. So in that concept was, I didn't even want my name on the building. The partnership thought it was the smart thing to do after what had happened this last year. Mm -hmm. And with us closing down three of our restaurants, inevitably selling the restaurants in August, we just sort of kept this one. We just had a feeling that this location, which was the original Liberty Kitchen, like just still had some legs to it. So we didn't want to sell that piece of it. We sold the brand, but not the one building. And so we kept it and we just stayed patient, right? And so that's really what Fegans is about. It's just, it was us keeping a location and then moving forward slowly as we sort of saw the tea leaves unfolding within the market. And we already knew everybody was struggling and I didn't want to go into a, a to-go business. So that's really the essence of Fegans. And then we just opened right when we felt like the state was going to start releasing some of those regulations. And so I think the timing was right. And maybe there's a little luck in that, but something we learned about our Liberty Kitchen years, 11 years that we own Liberty Kitchen is be patient and don't make decisions for the sake of money. Don't make decisions that are based on emotional context, just be patient. So that's where that came from. And then moving backwards, if I just sort of covered Liberty Kitchen, but starting at my career really started the day I moved to Texas back in 1983, I became a dishwasher at a pretty famous restaurant in Seabrook called the Crazy Cajun mm-hmm. back in the day in Sunny Payne. And there I shucked oysters, I washed dishes, I learned how to grill, I learned how to fry my valet parked cars. And so I fell in love with the restaurant business then. And then I did my normal high school sports thing and then college, a little bit of athletics in college. And that just wasn't my path. So I went to the Culinary Institute of America. It was near where my family was from up in New York and Connecticut and New Jersey. So it seemed like a pretty easy transition. Mm -hmm. Food's always been a part of our family being in New Jersey. We're Italian. So food was always a thing. And a matter of fact, I think in my baby book, my mother actually wrote about the age of five that I'll end up being a chef, interestingly enough. So going to culinary school, and that was fine. I'm not sure if I needed that or not, but it, it certainly got me into Brennan's of Houston, which I don't know if Chris and I spoke about it the other day, but 
I had another customer come in. I was shucking oysters at the bar this weekend. And we talked about the talent that walked out of Brennan's kitchen. And there's probably 10 or 12 of us now that were line cooks in that place that have gone on to do pretty remarkable things. Like you can't really say that about another restaurant in Houston. Yeah. So Chris Shepard and all those guys, Mark Holly, Carl did an amazing job with us. Like he beat us to a pulp, but he did it with respect and love. And it's something I took back into my kitchens moving forward. I went from there to the Houstonian Hotel. So I got a lot of Houston. Houstonian Hotel gave me a lot of depth in budget management. I had a staff about 170 when I was like 24 years old. No idea what I was doing. Absolutely no idea. But you are under fire in a hotel. It's 24-7. It's 365 days. And I had a really strong mentor come aboard named Jim Mills, who basically said, you're going to do my job. And he taught me how to do his job as the executive chef. And so I learned everything from him, how to budget, how to deal with people, how to deal with executive committees, how to deal with customers, all the different components of food facility on the campus. And he even let me do TV. He let me do radio. He let me do publication stuff. When I walked out of there at the age of 30, I had had 15,000 man hours of practice. And then when I got to owning a restaurant at Zula, Glass Wall, and eventually BRC and Liberty Kitchen, like I had had everything that I needed. Um, and, I, and I think that's probably what kept me driving through um, even all those difficult times. Our, our company has some really difficult financial periods um, over the years. And so um, it really prepared me to, to this. And now Chris and I were just talking about how this restaurant might be different than anything I've ever done, because it's all about, it's not about my name. It's about how we're going to, how this is going to be reflected upon down the road. And it's about our culture. Um, so I, I, I'd love more than anything to talk about our culture and how we're determining culture in Fegan's restaurant and how that became from really all the years of uh, being in this business and watching um, the positive and negatives, and then me personally changing and evolving into a different man completely over the last, for sure, the last five years. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about it. You know, culture brings up so many different things. Uh, of course, one of the hot buttons right now, which you're all from, with, we're all familiar with, is uh, at least in the media and talking to their operators, the labor crunch. You know, tr uh, there seems to be difficult time. Uh, getting enough people in. Um, and one of the things that I keep hearing from every operator, every successful operator like yourself, is that, you know, um, it's the culture of your concept that's going to keep people around. It's going to attract good talent. It's not just a, just about throwing another dollar an hour at them. Um, is that part of it? Or are we, you know, are we talking about a much bigger thing? You know, how it flows from culture flows from the menu, culture flows from the guest experience. Um, tell us all about it. Cause I, I'm really interested. Yeah. I, I think it's a mixture of a, a lot of things, but I think the, at least for me, uh, you know, the, my old boss, um, my boss's boss from the Houstonian Mark Yankee um, was in the restaurant the other day. He said, you found the culture that we tried to teach you back in the day. And we were a Covey company back then. You know, the Houston was a Covey company. And so, um, and, and I say that with, with love and respect because that taught me a lot. But, I, you know, I shared with him, he said, so how are you doing with staffing? And I said, look, Mark, I, I'm not going to go out and put any sign up 
or, or put a dollar amount in Indeed or in any publication and attract people. What, what I've determined, and I, and I can speak for the front and the back, what's happened in this three months. So the two months of prior to, to building up and then the two months that we've been open, we're getting the best clients, our customers, because our servers and our cooks really love working here. And I'm not patting myself on the back. The culture is telling these cooks and servers, they're going out into their other jobs. They're going out into their, to their families and saying, I really like working for that man. He, he, brings his, he brings his A game, but then doesn't beat us over the head when we make mistakes. And he hugs us and he takes care of us in ways that um, people are not used to. And so we're recruiting from our behavior. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. You, uh, I want to stress just two things that you said there before you continue that I think listeners need to make note of there. You started talking about cultural points. Two things came out very obvious, and, and that was example setting. You said, I, you know that the people there say they like working for this guy. So obviously there needs to be positive environment that's created at the top. You need to set the right example. Um, and then the next point that you mentioned was about caring. They must feel uh, that they're honestly cared for, that they belong there. Um, so so the, I'm sure there's other points that are coming, but th those are two things that I thought were astounding, that if, if, if anyone that owns a small restaurant today could make a couple notes to remind themselves that it all starts with the example we as owner operators set, and it's about the care that our staff sees that we can give to them. Um, please continue. Yeah. Uh, perfect. That's a perfect reflection. Um, it, it's about our presence. I, I mean, you know, I, I practice my life a, a lot differently spiritually and, and, and I've had a lot of um, humility dished out towards me um, over the years. And so how, my presence and how I deliver myself is my main objective. Like um, how I'm going to respond to my staff or to my customers is more important than how they respond to me. That is one of my, my premium rules. So they can be negative towards me, they can be mean towards me, and they can send me you know, bad reviews, but my response will always be genuine and authentic because it'll come from me and it won't be to challenge anybody but to say, oh man, that, I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you. Right. And so, so how I'm delivering myself, I think is critical. And then pushing that down and mentoring that to my senior staff um, is at times very trying, right? Because there's a lot of people that have gone through these businesses. I have an employee that's worked for a guy for 12 years. I'm not sure how he functions based on his past. And I struggle with him on a daily basis, this, the specific senior manager. And, um, but I, I can't, let him go without delivering my best to him because I don't think he was given his best by his bosses. Right. And so I think everyone's salvageable in some sense. Um, but the community itself is more important than the individual too. So that's another piece that I always look at, like what is best for everybody. And I've had a couple of, of employees that were sort of all-stars in a sense, and I've had to sit them down and say, in my world, the all-star gets the door first because the all-star tends to create the most amount of chaos and drama 
in the collective and I can't let the collective suffer. Um, and I've only had to have that conversation twice and neither of those guys have, um, have left and they have changed in some ways. Um, so that was sort of helpful. You know, is, is this the culture that you're developing in your, um, your restaurant, is it organic? Is it, you know, we're just going to watch how the owner, how the chef, how he acts and, and we'll get it. Or do you actually have a value statement? Is there something about your onboarding process? Is there something about what you do during your stand-up meetings mm-hmm. that communicates this in very concrete terms rather than just watching, but hey, this this is this is what we stand for. Yeah. So that's an interesting question. You know, when we had Liberty Kitchen, we were up to seven restaurants and we had every every word you wanted in a manual. You know, we had the philosophy, the core value system, our principles, the mission, vision, values, everything. And I got to tell you, we failed miserably because we wrote all that beautiful stuff and then we didn't deliver it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what happened with Fegans is, is that I don't believe there's any other intention but to just have this one restaurant. And, and if I could just backtrack for just a second, like people ask me, why did I do I was the one that voted not to do the restaurant out of the five of us. And my name ends up on the door, right? But, but in, in, in acquiescing and say, okay, you know what? I love my business partners. I mean, I have a, a deep love for my business partners. And so they wanted it. And so I said, okay, I'm on board and I'll get with the program. And, but this is my legacy, not my legacy as a chef. So maybe this is where the confusion is for a lot of people with the name on the building. There's nothing to do with my legacy as Lance of 30 years in this profession. This is a legacy of he's a good man and he wants what's best for everybody and everybody can get what they need out of this place. The owners, the bank, the vendors, the clients, our guests, our landlord, everybody can benefit if we deliver ourselves properly. So to answer your question specifically, Mm -hmm. I put all of our old ways aside Hey, I demand you read this document. I demand that you sign this document. I demand you live up to these principles and values. I'm sorry. I'm a Buddhist. I know one thing I cannot do is demand anybody do anything, Mm -hmm. right? I can put rules in and say, hey, please be on time. Let's not eat in the kitchen. Let's not steal. But these are all very simple, basic principles that we all really know anyway, don't we? Do I really need to have a law that says don't be late? No. I don't. So I put those aside. And what I told my partners is I am going to be the policy book. So what I want the others to behave like, I have to be that. And that's a ton of weight. I I just realized that as I verbalized that to you, (laughs) it's a a ton of weight. But but the reality is, is we get so complicated. We get so entrenched in complicating our businesses. We forget what we're there for. We're there to be good to each other for six or seven hours. What happened to having fun, but taking our job seriously, right? Like if a customer's not having a good day, can we help him with that? Do we have to pile on top of him? And if he just isn't happy, we don't have to dish it back out to him, mm-hmm. right? And so I don't know if that answers your question, but I am the document that I wanted everybody to sign. And the only way I need them to sign it is to look at me and said. I'm going to follow him Mm -hmm. and I'm going to behave like him. 
Does that make sense? It makes sense. That's what I suspected what you were going to tell me, um, just given your uh, how you described it and, and your passion for this particular um, way of doing business, if I may call it such. Mm-hmm. Lance, you began um, this description of your goal and the working culture by paying a compliment to your early influences and where you came from. And that was another building with another you know, good big name and the fact that the Brennan family, to your compliment, seemed to properly develop a tremendous amount of culinary leaders. Um, so it sounds like as I listen to your, um, uh, to your description of what you're hoping the success uh, that you can breed into others is that years from now, people are gonna say the same thing when they say the sign at Figgins is hopefully complement the amount of uh, good people that were developed there and went on to create tremendous impact in the restaurant industry. You know, I'm listening to a, a classically trained chef with lots of experience um, talking about uh, the importance of the management and business acumen that you develop plants and the importance of how you treat your guests and your staff. And, and these are the things that are going to differentiate you in terms of being successful. And I'm talking to a chef and he hasn't said anything about the menu yet. Um, it's making me wonder. And I hate I said this once at a conference and 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 the wind got sucked out of the room. I said, well, you know, you know, the food's just basically your passport to get into this business, but it's not going to make or break you. Um, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm kind of getting that drift from you as well. Uh, yeah. And then if you wanted to talk about the food at my restaurant specifically, all you have to do is, is talk to my mother and my <laughs> grandparents and my grandparents' parents, because most of the recipes are variational skews of stuff that I enjoyed as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, but it also, it also sort of in a larger sense talks about my legacy in a sense that this really isn't about what I am in, in, in the sense of food, but more, more of a sense of who I am as a person, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so the food I think is, um, I watch my guys cook. I love those guys, man. They cook my mom's food like my mom did. Like I watch them. I can sit back and they're like, chef, get out of the way. We got it. Right. And, and that you can't teach that, or maybe you can, and maybe I do it by trusting them, but they also probably see a little bit of the passion in my eyes and how I'm tasting the food. So um, it, 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 it's a beautiful thing when I see chefs that have an amazing food talent. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, it's, it's very saddening to me when I see that talent um, derailed by behaviors, by ideology that doesn't really quite better the whole group. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so it, it's been on my, it's been on my radar, actually. It's part of something I've been working on in my school studies and psychology of coming up with a chef's group that's a little bit more built for some guys in their thirties and forties that maybe we can have this our own group and talk about changing the stopping the circle of abuse. If that's maybe too strong of a word, but it started with my abuse of alcohol years ago and, and how I decided and my ex-wife decided to stop the circle of abuse within my family. 
right? And, and so I, I look at my studies now as, a, as someone that works at a, a drug rehab facility too, as a culinary director, like how important food is in the context, just not the recipes, but mm-hmm. like what it means. And, and I, I feel like there's a group of us that could really benefit these younger, younger guys out there that just maybe are a little lost and think that the only thing that matters is what's on the plate. And, and that's going to be anything could be farther from the truth. Mm-hmm. So. So in addition, though, to what's on the plate, um, you, maybe you could also talk a little bit about how you built um, the idea of the concept, uh, the, uh, the hours of operation. How did you stagger the opening? Uh, maybe you could describe the concept's ability to handle what lunch, dinner, private parties. Uh, what are all the things that people would enjoy at Fegan's? Well, I think patients told us to just do dinner right off the bat. We also were pretty protective. We had some PPP money and we were pretty protective of that. We didn't want to sort of just start throwing it away. Um, So just opening for dinner made some sense. And we also knew that we had a fairly decent um, staffing already set for that. Um, And then the, the hours uh, we really trimmed those down and we looked at really what everybody else was seemingly doing, you know, what was working, like staying up until 11 o'clock at night just doesn't really make any sense anymore. Right. So we, we sort of trimmed those things down. And then when we looked at lunch and brunch, we also looked at past what we used to do in the past and to then look in the, we drive around the Heights and we see what everybody else was doing. And we were able to sort of gauge some numbers based upon activity that we saw. So, but we were still pausing on lunch because still lunch hasn't quite gotten back to where it was. Um, And I didn't want to rush that again and start having this labor tick back up to 24, 25%. Um, But I also know that I've got to have that late, that I've got to have the revenue at lunch and brunch to really drive my sales up to like 60,000 a week is where I really need to be. And I can't do that six nights a week, I can't do 10,000 a night out of that store. It's not really feasible to do that. So um, anyway, we've been smart with the PPP money. And, and so like, we're just phasing that in and we just opened for lunch last week officially, and we're getting our $1,500 a day. And so that's been pretty good. We use the outside dining facility as best that we can, though summer is coming and we're already seeing a little bit of pushback on wanting to sit inside or outside. Uh, so we have to be careful with how we load that dining room on the busiest periods. And of course, the weather's not been all that great uh, the last couple of weeks with the rain. So there's a lot of fluidity and challenge that's been sort of going on. But this is this is why we do it. Right. Like it's not all going to get laid out and be perfect. And it's been beautiful to teach like the hostess how to manage that crisis and the GM. Here's what I'd like to see when the customers are piling up at the door. Let's move somebody off the hostess and let's get some cocktails offered up, mm-hmm. right? It's about service at this part, so. Well, early on, you mentioned, uh, when we were first uh, talking, you mentioned a couple of key things that you learned through your life, and that was the ability to be patient and not always make decisions just about the dollar. And listening to you answer that question about opening, your choices for opening, your staggering, sounds like that uh, that, that was your belief put into practice. Um, yes. Not to hurry. Uh, just because you may have been able to raise uh, more dollars quicker 
uh, not to open for lunch until you really knew that, you know, you were confident that it would work well. Um, and it sounds like you're operating six days, not seven days. Is that correct? Yeah, we opened. Actually, it's a really interesting di dilemma we had. I, I thought that Tuesday was a terrible lunch day when I looked around the heights. So I brought that to the table. I said, let's not open for, for Tuesday for lunch. And my, my partners were like a little like, well, that's going to confuse everybody. I'm like, confuse everybody from what? And they're like, well, you know, like restaurant. I said, every restaurant was closed for nine months. What are you talking about? It, everything has been reset, right? And then I reminded them that there's several restaurants in the Heights that are open on Monday, but closed on Tuesday. And so I had to have to change their perception of reality. So Monday's great. I, I think having one day closed in this environment, maybe at our check average, not necessarily for every restaurant, but for our check average, being closed on Monday in essence means nothing really can go wrong on Monday. No one cannot come in. Someone's got to cover another shift and go to a sixth or seventh day. Like we've got a day to really break down and be ourselves and not worry. And I think there's something valuable there. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's worth, you know, $150,000 a year in sales. But to me, at my age and where I am, it is worth $150,000 worth of sales. Because mm -hmm. I know what happens in our business. Stuff just happens. So, um, and, and then closing on Tuesday has been actually really nice. And the chef's like, wow, it's really amazing what we can get done in this building on Tuesday morning with a couple of the lunch guys come in and prep. And gets everything loaded up for the Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights. And I feel a different sense about that too. So what actually ends up happening is these guys are still these, especially as Latinos, they, they got two jobs still, right? And they're pushing to not, like they need a break in between their jobs. So like what, what I'm starting to see them do is push to 4, 4.30. So I have really only about 45 minutes to get the line set for dinner. But that extra half a day of no one being around and just getting set really alleviates some of that pressure and actually helps us on our labor. Tell us a little bit more about that, you know, in terms of uh, if you can, if you can share the, the strategy and numbers behind that statement, I'm quite interested. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you are trying to work off, and we work off a simple percentage, you know, we write our schedules based off of a certain percentage on a certain day, um, but things just happen. We get busy and you get slow. What I'm always looking for is this fine line of like, I got to get them in as late as I can in the afternoon, but still be ready. And, and, and so when, if, my, if I've got a, a night of six guys on the line that are all making, say, an average of 14 an hour, you know, so I, I look at that hour and go, well, that's, that could be almost a point of labor in one, in one shift. So if I can save a point here on the front, I'm going to do that every time. Now, that puts a little pressure on maybe myself or the set the two salary guys to drive that a little bit. But here's one of the other things that we changed. Liberty Kitchen and the Heights used to be open from the time it opened to the time it closed. There was no period in the middle. And even my partners were like, hey, we want to keep that going. I'm like, no, I don't think it's a good idea because when you look at the metrics of that, between 2.30 and 5 o'clock, 4.30, what was in our restaurant were, were basically happy hour style customers drinking Lone Stars and eating dollar tacos. And I was like, guys, I got a $60,000 a year chef killing himself 
for an hour serving $200 worth of food. This is not worth it, right? So, so we closed that period. Now the chefs have time to do their ordering, time to get sort of a break and sit down and have lunch, but then they get back to work and get that line ready to go. When the boys come in, they don't have that stress either of having to get set up in 30 minutes. So in, in essence, I can save about an hour to an hour and a half of hourly labor by having that time pushed a bit. Mm-hmm. And morale is better too, I guess. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the, the moral to the story is that, you know, it isn't a one size fits all. You just made that point very well about continuous flow of business. For many concepts, it might make sense that they open at 11, they serve continuous to nine, but it isn't one size fits all. And we have to question our model and make sure that the model works for economics as well as for the people. Uh, it sounds like you did that very well. Yeah, it, it's gotta be a balance. I, I, I think one of y'all said the word balance before and it's all about the balance. And, and I, I'm not saying that our bank's not putting pressure on us with, with payments and, and bills and all things. Like there's certainly pressure there to do that. But at the sense of spinning the wheels over and over and over again, I don't know that that's worth it. And I think you get stuck, you get stuck in the cycle and then it exhausts you, the owner. And when you're toast, everyone's toast. There's no doubt about that. Once, once I, the owner, start going down the hill, I'm pretty much going to take everybody with me. That is a for sure part of this business. Your presence um, in the restaurant would seem to be hugely important based on your philosophy and 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 get everybody to walk the walk. So my guess is that you're working in the business quite a bit. If that's true, how much time are you spending to work on the business and still find the balance and and uh, you know and peace of mind that that you seem to be seeking in your in your larger life oh well uh you know i have gotten really good at not wasting time Mm -hmm. i've removed a lot of the things in my life that don't bring me joy number one um i live in a place in galveston that is real close to the water so i i can certainly shift a meeting or two if the surf is good in the morning um and if it's not good i can still get my swim in or get a run in on the beach. Um, I can do that seven days a week if I wanted to. So I, I put that piece first, right? Now that's a little insanity considering I come into town four to six days a week. That's 12 hours in the car minimum. That's a uh, 120 miles round trip each way. That gets to be a little insanity, but, but I also read books through my, through my phone in the car, right? Like I've got that sound coming through or I'm making phone calls personally to my friends that live in different parts of the world or in different parts of the U.S. So I'm doing productive things with that time. Um, and then I'm in the restaurant. I'm there either as Lance and working the table or shucking oysters or in the back cooking or working the expo or just helping people in the building. So the balance for me is I love what I'm doing, right? I have schoolwork taking the summer off from my classes, but I had 12 hours last semester and uh, I had, I had 12 hours last semester and I, I opened a restaurant. It, it can be done. And I have two kids, an 11 and a 24 year old plays hockey at Oklahoma and a 12 year old that 
that plays lacrosse and is pretty good. And they're good human beings and they know that I'm happy. And so they bring me their best. Like they don't drop their stuff on me to help fix. So like my ex-wife is even really important in my life. I don't date. I'm single and I've been single for a long time. And that's probably one of the things that I've, that I've maybe either missed or have mistakenly not had. But again, I don't have a lot of time to start getting other people in my life. And then I also have a coaching business that I do recovery coaching um, for people struggling with drug and alcohol and the culinary director up there. So again, in short, I'm really good. I found my roles and I address my roles the week before every week starts. So I know where I need to be when I need to be there. And I don't have to worry about making bad decisions with my time because I just don't waste time. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the, I think the most important part is, is when I'm there, wherever that is, I am there. When I'm surfing, I am surfing. When I am swimming, I am swimming. When I'm driving, I'm driving. When I'm shucking oysters, I'm shucking oysters. I'm talking to the four customers in front of me. I'm not trying to manage the expo line to my left. I'm not making sure that he's pouring an ounce and a half of bourbon in the glass at the bar. I'm just focused in the moment. And I think we don't do that enough. Well, we should get better at being present. When we're present, our best selves come out. When our best selves come out, we can do whatever we want. Nothing is nothing then becomes a chore. Driving to Roundtop to do a cooking class for people who are struggling with drug and alcohol addiction to teach them how to make a dashi broth. I want to do that. And that whole six hour thing is nothing but blessings for me. Mm-hmm. And that's my perception of life. And I think that's why people are amazed at how I do what I do in 24 hours and still get six hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. So oh. I love it. I love all of it. Gosh, that's another extremely profound lesson. I think on time management and the importance of what we do um, for all those that are listening. Too many times we deal with the independent restaurant operator. It feels like they have to think about three things at one time. Uh, they are running crazy in their own store because they feel like if if we don't do that, uh, the dike is going to you know burst. Um, and so it's hurry to the line to check on things hurry to the bar to make sure the pour is accurate, hurry to a table, touch the table to make sure the guest is happy, then hurry to the door to check on the hostess, and then hurry back to the line and that kind of thing. And what I heard you just say is that you can be so much more effective if you just dwell on doing what it is you're doing. So when you're on the line, you're on the line. Um, And and when you want to uh, work with say guests or support your staff at the bar, then you're there and you do that. You're going to get a lot more done if we are really, really focused um, and dwell on one thing at a time. Am I saying that right? Absolutely. Because I can tell you this, every employer, every customer, they know when you're not checked into them, this relationship, this moment in time, they know. And so if, if you're not checked into them, what, what are they going to do to buy into you? They're not, they're just simply not. And then where is that level of like deciding on, I'm going to teach you. And then I need to just put the, I need to give you the keys to the car, man, and drive the car. And then when you get off course, let me correct you a little bit, but I'm not going to beat you to death over it, but I'm going to keep my boundaries and I'm going to keep you accountable. Right. And let we, you know, today I sent a text out, Hey guys, I'd like, I'd like your final inventories by the end of day, Wednesday. 
I don't need them on Tuesday at nine o'clock in the morning, the first day of the, I mean, putting that kind of pressure on everybody, what is that really doing? Like, I'm not going to address the, the inventory for four or five more days anyway, because my P&L is not going to come out from accounting. So, and then I'm not going to push my accounting to change the day so I can get the information faster, so I can get worked up faster, right? Like we manage ourselves on a daily basis so that nothing, there's not really a big surprise at the end of the day. But I, I will say one thing, and you said it. When I see people running in circles like that, I, I, I must tell you, um, I find that to be a self, that's a self issue where they actually don't know how to operate outside of chaos. They actually suck the chaos in and it justifies their own feelings. And I think this is a huge problem. And I'm, like, I'm going to say that about people in general, right? And this is stuff that I learned about in school. It's stuff I learned about as a Buddhist. You start putting the chaos out there, you're going to get it all back for sure, right? And if you're going to find chaos to fix it, you're for sure going to bring it. And, and I think that's the thing, like in the presence, we can eliminate the chaos. We might not get the outcome we wanted in that particular place and time, but let's get down to the basics. What is a customer going to your restaurant for? Not perfection. They want to be, they want a good meal. They want good value and they want great service. That's it. Occasionally somebody wants something else, but at the end of the day, that's what they want. Let's not pretend that we are so important that my uh, sauce has to be so perfect that only I can determine its perfection, please. That's, that is an invitation for chaos in your whole, your whole kitchen and your whole company and eventually into your clients. And I, and I think uh, our ability to step back from that and say, I'm not gonna bring any more chaos into my place is the best thing we can do. And, and a lot of that, I'm sure, is just your your approach, your 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 worldview, um, which is impressive. Um, I also got to believe that you like good systems where you can get them to keep life from you know from problems from from arising. Um, what is your you know what is your dedication to the systems? Where where what systems in your restaurant are are really important to basically? keeping the drama level low. So things yeah. kind of run predictably. Um, maybe you could share that with us. Sure. I think to me, it's, it all comes down to the primes, right? The mm -hmm. prime cost being my two biggest issues, which would be labor and then my, my product costs. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I don't have my GMs worrying about how much the electric bill was or the water bill. What I'm concerned about are my primes. Mm -hmm. And if I can keep my primes sub 55, I'm in great shape. Right. And yeah. so, um, our, our scheduling system, so we used to use uh, another POS company, but we got involved in, with Toast and their, their system is pretty good. It's got some, some flaws that I wish we could be a little bit more up to, the, up to date on by the minute, um, but we found a way around that. We schedule based upon a budget and then we schedule through the day based upon what's actually happening. So we have an app that basically sell, tells us minute to minute where we are in the field and hey it's not going to happen let's get some bodies out right so we manage in the minute not in chaos but we manage in the minute so we we try to manage a week ago what we think is going to happen next week but that's not where it ends it that's just a marker 
And then we get into the day and we start working on the day. And then the other thing that I've taught my, my managers, I was like, I don't really even care about the P&L. What I care about is what are we buying today? What are we going to need tomorrow? And how do we get to this really tight inventory without running out of stuff? Mm-hmm. And that are, those are our basic fundamental principles in that restaurant. Now, I would imagine if I had, when I had Liberty Kitchen 7 restaurants, I don't really, couldn't really work that way. But in a smaller place, if we all we're doing is sitting in the back office trying to figure out the numbers, guess what we're not doing? Touching the food, touching the customers, and touching the employees. The three most important pieces to profit. The computer in the back is the least important piece. And so when I've done consulting jobs for stuff, like I, the managers, I'm like, well, you guys spend an awful lot of time plucking out numbers and trying to draw. I said, you didn't touch a single table today. You know how many friends you can make by touching a table? Actually, the ones that hate you the most, they're your best customers when you touch their table. And you do it right, and now you've turned something tragic into something beautiful in a human sense. Get out of the, get out of the office. So this is another secret. Carl and I said, Carl, I don't want an office anymore at Segan's. I want you to, I want you to put one computer outlet right there and that guy is right next to the front door now because they found a spot in the back where they could sit for hours and do whatever they were doing right so uh i I don't know if that if you were hoping for some like great software piece but no i I have what i have and i said let's just focus on these costs and let's schedule and then let's work with the numbers right here right now and let's make choices hard choices like send a body home. Well, we might get hit later. Well, here's the thing. We run on the rail of disaster. Profitable restaurants run the rail of disaster. We're not a five-star hotel where we have people just sitting around because the people are paying $700 a night for a room. If you're not running on the edge of disaster, you're probably not very profitable in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's that's a very interesting point points that you've made. And, and, and I mean, it's worth underlining because we've heard this from other successful um, hands on, you know, operators that that um, if you plan by the week, which you do well, obviously, you're managing by the day. OK, then, you know where you are on your prime costs. You put all your other emphasis on the customer. I've heard that before. I've heard people say that, that, you know, that it, it isn't about the P&L. By the time you get the P&L, it's no longer information for guys like you. It's basically just confirmation of what you already know, because you're planning by the week, you're setting your goals, you're managing by the day. So that that tells me that, you know, where you stand more quickly and you can appropriate your time for the touching of the tables. Yes. Yeah. You had uh, said in passing earlier, you know, that you had a conversation with your partner to say, listen, we're in a different environment now. Okay. This is the things have changed over the last year, which, which sounds, um, you know, like, oh, sure, of course they have, but you've been in this business for a long time and you work for some pretty heavy hitters. Um, what, what's different now about the guest, about, size of the menu um what what's different about walking through this door now after this you know last 12 14 months of 
of weirdness and society and, and the business and, and all that, you know, what, what can you share about that? You know, I don't know. I, I, I will tell you this. I found, I found a lot of the uh, reviews that we were getting online to be very reminiscent of the reviews I have received for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, That didn't change. and but my perspective of the of the review change and how I utilize that review change, um, I, I think the people that are coming in seem to have this beautiful sense of gratitude. And and I, and I don't know, I, like I, I keep thinking it's the room that we built and that Carl and I designed, but I'm watching I get to watch the entire dining room from where I stand mm-hmm. at the oyster bar. And I just people are just having fun. The conversations are good. I don't see a lot of um, disconnection anymore. I, I actually see very, I've seen less people on their phones at the table. And I actually see a lot less picture taking at the table. So that tells me something that there's some gratitude there, that there's some enjoying the moment. Um, and so I think, I think that's been, uh, I think that's been wonderful. And then I think the other thing is I'm, I'm getting, a lot of people demanding to see me at the table, mm-hmm. um, which at times is still like a struggle for me, you know, like uh, I'm chucking oysters and, and I get the demand, right. I get the look and I go over there and they're just like amazed by what we're doing. And it's, you know, I, my humility level is always at check now, but um, so I think that's what I've seen, like personally, what I see um, that's different out there, but I also see that, there's another side to this and I go out to eat a bit and I, and I see a lot of restaurants trying to um, be so careful and so precise that um, they're losing sense of what we're doing in there. And that is we're offering a good time for people for about an hour and 46 minutes. And, and if you can do that and make just a little bit of money doing it, I think we have a strong foundation um, if we're, if we're doing it for other reasons, I think we have a problem. Um, and then, and I think, uh, I, I always thought once this came back on, like most of the restaurants would not come back into business um, for, for us, was one of them. Um, but I still see people putting money out there and investing in restaurants. So maybe it really hasn't changed. Um, and, and I, and I, I guess those are probably the main pieces that I've seen that are, that are a bit different. Um, and you, you mentioned about menu size. I mean, I think I open less than I used to have. Liberty Kitchen in its onset had 126 menu items. And then eventually I had to get that down to about 80, right? And then uh, we got it down to about 60 and then everything happened. Um, when we opened back up, uh, mm-hmm. I, I looked at everybody's menus and everybody had cut their menus and like, I mean, I was counting 20, 21, 22, 26. So I, I kept going, I kept hitting about 30, 30, 32 on the mark is where I was finding the comfortable number um, with the idea of going, okay, so make sure that this is getting utilized here and this is getting utilized here. We're not a seafood restaurant. So seafood can be used in like 15 different things. Kind of hard to do that with pasta. It's kind of hard to do that with Italian sausage, right? So that was a little bit tricky. So now 
as, as we've gotten a little bit better and the cooks have gotten really good at these dishes, like we're cooking at nine, 10, 11 minute entree times. That is fast. That is really, really fast. And the only thing that slows us down is when I change from a Naples style pizza to a Sicilian pizza, because I have a thicker dough and it changes to about a 14 minute pizza time. Um, but, but still I'll take 14 minutes all day long. Um, and so the menu has grown because now what I'm getting is my return Liberty kitchen clients coming and going, Hey, Lance, can you put oysters on the menu? I was like, no, I will not put them, but I will shuck every weekend for you. I will be up here shucking. Cause if I put oysters on the menu, I just put another labor dollar into the week and I won't do that. I won't put everything at risk to just give everything to everybody. So if someone wants gumbo, I've gotten requests for gumbo and they, so our menu is only shifting a couple of pieces here and there when it makes some sense to do it. We've talked so much about your approach to you, your time, your role, staff, customer menu. How do you see managing the brand? What's the best way for you to plan, um, you know, marketing and promotion that works for vegans? Yeah. So this is my weakness, right? Um, I have a wonderful PR director and she is, she is discounting me heavily because I'm a one-man show now. Um, but I, I listened to her. I didn't used to listen to people. I just said, I just do it my way or get out. And so I don't know if that simply answers your question, but I'm yeah. trusting smarter people than me because I realized something when we, when, we let, when we sold the company, I realized she was way smarter than me in some areas. And so now I let her do that. I let her influence me with her intelligence. And then I, I still make her sort of show me what potential outcomes would be, but I let other, I let the real, I let the people that know what they're doing tell me what I should do. And then I take that information. Um, we're, you know, we do the, the, the Instagram and all those kind of things, but we're small. We're not going to be able to drop five, six, 10 grand on anything in marketing. And I know guys out there now are spending $10,000 to do a Facebook push for a weekend. Mm. I don't even know what that is. Right. And, and even if I did that, I only need Tuesdays and, and Wednesdays to get better. I'm good right now. So, um, so my, even my PR director is like, we don't have to do anything at this point. We'll start pushing brunch and lunch. And if I don't get any movement with brunch and lunch, then we'll start doing a little bit of marketing there. But at this point, I'm just letting my people that are smarter than me tell me what to do. Seems like you're getting people in the door somehow. And, uh, yeah. and, and I've got to imagine they're coming back, which, uh, you know, repeat patronage really is the lifeblood of the business, isn't it? It is. And we use Resi as a, a, a determining factor for that. We're seeing that and we're actually getting a lot of communication. We're using the Resi system, mm -hmm. um, not even at its peak, but we're seeing, you know, return guests. And so we're using that information. And it, look, at the end of the day, it's about the food and the service, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's just, it simply is. And this menu was built for this environment that we live in. The menu is built on, they could probably look through the entire menu and they might have one question on what, what, what is that? But everything else is fairly self-explanatory. And, and I think if, if I go back to your question about what's changed, at least for me, I think people want to go have a good time and they don't want to feel the sense of like, Oh, just give me something great. Our best-selling dishes right now are our chicken cutlet and our chicken salt and boca. They're chicken breasts. Mm -hmm. 
right? And they're just flying out the door. I got to order like six cases a day. Wow. Um, but we use really good chicken breast too. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're willing to pay for it. And so all the fancy things that are on the menu get, get less attention. And I think mm-hmm. people want to feel comfortable again, you know, and enjoy their food without making it be a big project. Right. And it sounds like you didn't really jump on board with the whole takeout and third party delivery stuff that was happening before the pandemic, but it certainly was accelerated by it. It seems like yeah. you're, you're, you're putting your, your bets on pent up demand for um, on-premises dining. A- am I, am I getting it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to even Liberty kitchen, if, if, my one of that partners pushed to do to go. I was like, Hey guys, I don't believe raw seafood is to go food. Like <laughs> shucked oyster. I don't see a, I don't see a plan here for people calling up for that. So, um, but, but again, it, you know, there's, there's already enough. There, it's really difficult. I, I see the difficult part of an all to go business. If we were doing all to go business, it would slow our momentum down tremendously so there's times where i'm happy to have some to go and sometimes where it just gets in the way of our normal service periods you know boxing up things slows everything down and on a saturday night and a to-go order for 12 people come in it just everything comes to a crawl you know and so like i'm not a super big fan of it but i also understand that it works for a lot of places in mine it may work but i'm not really a pizza place in that sense Mm -hmm. and i'm not really a traditional italian place in that sense, I'm still what Lance would call like this sort of mixture of like coastal Italian thing going on. But uh, again, you know, it doesn't come to mind when the kids are at the table. Like, what are we having tonight? Pizza, fajitas, you know, burgers, Chick-fil-A. Like, it doesn't really come up. Vegans won't really come up in the in the context of to-go food. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it will when people say, oh, man. I got this great place that's got red leather booths. The lighting is low and they got Frank Sinatra on, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's an application for us. The to-go, not necessarily. I'm appreciative of it for sure, but I didn't change my menu to make it more to-go friendly. Like my partners thought we should make it more to-go friendly. I'm like, I don't believe the people in Houston are going to sit in their houses much longer. I think they're going to get out and I think they're going to experience living again. And that was my bet. For sure. Mm-hmm. Well, it yeah. looks like to me, <clears throat> your bet's been paying off. If you've only been a few months in business, you've had critic acclaim, you've had busy nights, and your unit is profitable. I, uh, I, I think Barry and I have been, uh, have been truly, truly engulfed in your explanations of who you are and how you do what you do. We thoroughly enjoyed the pointers, you know, that you made for a uh, proper way of operating a business and, and, and what your goals are. We could, you know, talk forever about this, but I'm afraid we're going to need to wrap up this episode. Yeah. So let me just say thank you again so much for your time and, uh, and for what you're doing for the industry and the example that you're, you're setting. Yeah. I'd also like to tell everyone that's listening to learn more about Lance or to reach out to Lance. Uh, just go straight to uh, Fegans, F-E-G-E-N-S.com. Yeah. You know, the, the best part of this is hearing about how you're bringing your personal integrity and respect for quality of life into this whole picture. And it's, uh, you know, I think that's uh, something that independents probably have more control of than anything else if they put their mind to it. And that's yeah. what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. Then you got the message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can make those changes to subtle if they, 
there's something bigger out there mm-hmm. than, than our worries about our restaurants. I get, I get it, but there's something bigger. When you find it, your restaurant will turn around. Mm-hmm. I, I, I assure you of that. Well, thank you. You've uplifted my Tuesday afternoon, so I appreciate it. My pleasure, Barry. It was, it was great. Thank you guys for having me on. Continued success. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.